This is Leslie David Baker, who's Stanley Hudson from NBC's The Office, and you're watching That's What She Said. That's What She Said, episode 43. Did I stutter? Wow, that is really hard. You really think you can go all day long? Well, you always left me satisfied and smiling, so... That's what she said! <laughs> Suicide doors on my 57 Chevy Roll around town like a hero I got you on my mind Just like all the time Pedal down, nowhere to go And welcome to episode 43 of That's What She Said, a podcast about the Emmy Award-winning NBC show, The Office. As always, I'm your Human Resources Coordinator, Matt Summer, and this week we're going to be taking an in-depth and spoiler-filled look at the 12th episode of season 4, entitled Did I Stutter?, which originally aired Thursday, May 1st, 2008. When a sassy, upset, black man named Stanley lets out his smelly frustrations on his clueless purple boss, Michael. It's up to Dwight to eat the nice cat food. Um, let's try that again. When Stanley erupts, Michael has to find a way to deal with the office insurrection. Dwight plots his revenge against Andy. Pam gets beaten with the ugly stick. And Jim faces a humiliating beatdown of his own from a hobbit-loving half-beard. How can Jim and Ryan solve their differences? Two words. Fluffy fingers. Lots to discuss, lots to talk about. Let's head on over to the water cooler. It's a real shame, because studies have shown that more information gets passed through water cooler gossip than through official memos, which puts me at a disadvantage, because I bring my own water to work. Why'd you do this? I didn't do it. Oh, the water cooler was brought over here for maintenance. So what do you guys hear? What's the scuttlebutt? All right, and joining me at the water cooler again this week is our dear, our dear traveling salesman Kevin Crossman. Kevin, how you doing? Uh, you know, Matt, I've been doing this for a while here, and that's what she said. But every time I enter the room, my stomach hurts just a little. <laughs> well, maybe it's psychological. <laughs> oh man. Well, um, here we are, episode twelve. We only have a few more episodes left, and. Uh, you know, you and I have been a little, maybe a little lukewarm over the last few weeks of episodes. Uh, ever since the strike returned, I wasn't a really huge fan of the kind of crazy awkwardness of Dinner Party. I found some things to like in the last two episodes, some things to dislike as well. But that brings us to Did I Stutter? And aside from having a rather strange name compared to all the other Office episodes. This episode, I think, has to be the most divisive episode in the history of That's What She Said, looking at the comments on the blog page. I don't think we've ever gotten more comments or more negative and positive comments, perhaps, on an episode before. So let me just throw it out there to you, Kevin. Did I stutter? Instant classic or piece of crap? I gotta say that Did I Stutter is an instant classic. (laughs) And it might be boring for listeners if we both enjoyed this episode and there's no tension in the room, but you know what? I gotta call it like I see it. And I enjoyed this episode thoroughly. And even on a rewatch, I maybe enjoyed it even a little more. And so that is the true test for me. Well, yep, that's uh, for all the haters out there and all the people who criticize us for being negative. Here you go. This is your dream episode. Uh, this is absolutely <laughs> an awesome episode. I loved it. I, this is probably my favorite episode of this post-strike episodes. It might be one of my favorite episodes of season four altogether. 
I don't want to hyperbolize it too much, but I, you know, I, I really loved it in a lot of ways. It, it, it did sort of feel like a bit of a patchwork quilt uh, with a lot of different storylines going on. We had a lot of stuff happening, a lot of stuff that was really kind of you know chopped out for the deleted scenes, unfortunately. Um, deleted scenes were really good, actually, this week, and I really wish yes. they would have been in the episode. And uh, we'll, we'll talk about that again in just a second here. All i got to say is I know that some people really disliked it because of the confrontational sort of anger, uh, scary kind of plot line there with Stanley. Stanley and Michael, you know, that was a non-funny confrontation. That was not a joke. <laughs> and I don't think we've seen as much tension in that room since Roy came in back in uh, Season 3. I don't know, man. It just worked for me. And the moment, I guess, what what I really particularly loved about this episode more than anything else is that a lot of times, as I was watching it, I I almost felt like I was riding on a train. I I, I kept fearing that they were going to somehow derail the episode. kind of felt like short round there in the Indiana Jones cart ride in Temple of Doom. Uh, That thing almost veering off the rails. You know, it's like, oh, oh, fluffy fingers. Oh, is he going to make him tickle Stanley? No, no, he brings it back on track. Oh, no, is he going to turn over control of Dwight? No, no, he brings it back on track. Everything that sort of kind of could have gone wrong or kind of fallen into cliche or kind of lame gags in that plot line, it just stayed so true, I think, to the characters. It stayed true to my expectations, and it really delivered. Now, I don't know, a lot of people are now saying that they actually hate Stanley as a character. What do you think about that? Well... I think that Stanley did not show a whole lot of redeeming qualities in this episode, but he's got a long way to go to catch up to Flunderson or Phyllis, and, and even in this very episode. So I give Stanley a break a little bit. I, I understand where he's coming from in terms of his hatred of Michael. At the same time, a lot of the criticisms of Stanley and, and some of the comments that he's kind of doing nothing and he's not really adding to the positivity of the <laughs> office and trying to improve things. I think those critiques are valid, but at the same time, uh, you know, he's been putting up with Michael for a long time and I guess he understands the games. To me, well, uh, you know, if you think about his role in the series over the last four years, I mean, when has he ever been positive about anything other than pretzel day? I don't think we've ever seen a smile. <laughs> on the guy's face, you know? It's like last week you get the comment about how he's going to kill him if he wasn't in his bathtub with uh, <laughs> with his glass of wine in an hour. Right. And, uh, you know, he's always always sitting there with the, the crossword puzzle and always gruff, and he kind of screwed Ryan during the uh, his first sales call, during the Traveling Salesman episode, if you remember that. So I don't know. I don't think that Stanley's ever been a lovable, huggable teddy bear like michael perhaps would have us believe even that even so it just it did ring true because you figure he's been there in the office i'm guessing for you know at least maybe as long as michael maybe 10 years maybe 14 years and like he said you know he's seen every stupid thing he's just kind of closed his eyes looked the other way every time michael's done something kind of silly or stupid or whatever the case may be and he just snaps so you know is he a terrible person a rotten character do i hate him I, you know, again, I don't know. I don't think I feel much different about him either way. I do think that at least at the end, despite what he says, he does kind of get a little bit of grudging respect for Michael when uh, when Michael takes him to task. Yeah, no, I, I agree. And I think that your comment about it being a patchwork this episode is really apt because it's exactly what I was talking about you know, the last week, the week before, where because this is a mature series, you're getting all these little bits from the characters, and because you've known them, you can instantly 
uh, recognize something that's funny that's unique to the character. Um, it doesn't have to be a whole major plot device. You can just go with it. And so, like you were saying, there's all these little bits from a lot of characters. Uh, not really a true B and C story. It's a lot, It's like there's an A story and then there's a bunch of D stories <laughs> that are woven throughout that I think were, were really interesting and, and exciting and funny. Yeah, it's true. And I, I, maybe to me this is an episode that is more than the sum of its parts, I guess. It, it really just all kind of came together. The Dwight stuff, again, leading off from from Night Out was Dwight the super competent. <laughs> My favorite way to see Dwight, you know, this super competent, power-grabbing guy, totally owns Andy. <laughs> you know, just that whole thing I just thought was hilarious. The Jim and Pam stuff, the whole glasses plot line really kind of got left on the cutting room floor. And if you see the deleted scenes when we play them in a little while, uh, you'll see, I mean, almost all that plot line got cut. And I'm assuming that the only reason they didn't cut the whole rest of it is because they then would have no reason to explain why Pam was wearing these hideous glasses. <laughs> why she couldn't see when they had to leave the room. Yeah, exactly. So yeah. it was okay. That little plot line was, you know, it was kind of humorous, kind of funny. It didn't, it didn't really have any big stakes. The office wasn't hating on them or anything like that, this time at least. Well, know. it made her feel creeped out. <laughs> yeah, well... She's still creeped out before, so I don't know. It's not nothing, and nothing new really for Pam. Yeah, <laughs> and I guess the other thing we got to talk about before we get into the meat of the episode is the amazing org chart, you know, was put <laughs> together by Dwight K. Schrute, property copyright for a thousand years or whatever it said. I mean, that was a great org chart, and had all kinds of little details. And I'm so glad that NBC put that out. Yeah, you know, real good high res PDF that you could really get in there and look at all the details on and a uh, lot to love there. Let's talk a little bit about that because for once, yeah, I'll, I'm going to agree that for once NBC uh, and NBC.com have really actually delivered something that added to the episode, didn't just make it like a marketing gimmick or some kind of task for Dunner Mifflin Infinity or whatever. This is something that actually adds to your enjoyment of the show. And originally, I was a little disappointed because they only released the chart and they didn't release the overlay chart. And then they did, came through with that as well. So you could see both uh, in very high quality and appreciate a lot of the jokes. And that, it does bring up a lot of other questions, though, as far as uh, who exactly Shirley and Heindel might be in the uh, Shrewd family hierarchy there. Also, some other questions. Why is there an arrow going from Lonnie in the warehouse back up to Michael? A question yeah. I still haven't answered. Um, <laughs> the only thing about the chart, and I'm not, okay, I'll nitpick the chart for a second here, Kevin, but <laughs> it's kind of funny that they have two people on the chart that are crossed out. Devin, who we talked about many times, that was fired in the Halloween episode. He's on the chart, but then crossed out. And mm -hmm. then there's the guy on the chart in the accountants area that was crossed out named Tom. And I'm like, I didn't know who that was at first, and someone pointed out to me on the blog page that back in the <laughs> back in season two, when they're looking at the uh, the suggestions in the suggestion box, that one of them is like, you know, we need psychiatric help or counseling or something, and one of the guys, uh, Phyllis, says something like, "Oh, that, you know, he killed himself in the office." You remember that guy? Yeah. And so we get that guy in there as, as crossed out. <laughs> But we don't have any of the Stanford people in there. And if you want to argue, you know, maybe they weren't there long enough. I mean, at least Karen should be on the list, if, if no one else. Certainly, certainly. But uh, be that as it may, still uh, quite a hilarious little visual prop gag there, especially with the menstrual cycle chart. I'm not really quite sure what to make of that. but. Well, and the, the question mark about Toby's uh, religion, <laughs> yeah. too. Jewish. <laughs> Well, you got to worry once, uh, you know, the whole Grandpa Mannheim thing, it kind of takes on a more sinister turn 
Um, <laughs> in any case, yeah, it was a very, very good visual joke, and kudos to NBC for putting those both online. And you can go check those out at NBC.com slash The Office. Now, before we get into the rest of the episode, uh, the one thing I do want to mention is that Kevin, you and I have both kind of gone on record the last few weeks, and the last season is not really being huge fans of the cold opens, uh, mostly because they're generally unrelated. Generally, we don't think they're very funny, and they take up a lot of time that otherwise could go towards the episode. Now, um, did you feel the same way this week that you did about Michael with the peanut butter on his head? I loved this week's cold open. I just loved all the little details of the characters and great funny lines. And again, once again, you're totally, it's like the drumbeat for war. This drumbeat that Michael has each and every week talking about needing kids, talking to his kids. He wants to show his kids the hole that was his face. I mean, it's just great. I love that cold open. And of course, we had one of the best That's What She Said ever. (laughs) That that is true. And we'll play that maybe in a little while. But I have to say that I agree, and the reason why I agree, initially I wasn't too fond of it, because this actually goes on for a long time. It's two minutes. Why I actually like this, as opposed to some of the other sillier ones, is that, right, what you just said there, that that last bit, that whole, that speech about how, you know, he's doing this for his memorial, and this is like, you know, he wants to leave his mark on the world to show his kids. It's like such an such an insight into Michael's character, I guess, that it actually seemed like a worthwhile digression to me to kind of bring that up. That's how his mind works that, uh, <laughs> you know, in a hundred years, it's going to come back to the Scranton business park and they're still going to have the, the face print in the cement. And you no. know what? I'll tell you, I'll, I'll admit, speaking of peanut butter, you know, when you open the new peanut butter and there's that pristine lid, I always draw something on there. And now that I've got kids, <laughs> I draw something with my kids in. It's just the same thing. That, that cement, you want to draw, you want to do something. It's his lifelong <laughs> dream. I totally get that. Man, well, so. I, I was lucky enough when I was about 14 that we uh, had our first mall opened up here in the city, and for some reason they had this big promotion outside of the J.C. Penney's that you could put your handprints or something in the cement to commemorate the uh, opening of the mall. And so for for many a year, I had my little handprint there and would point it out to any interested passerby as I went through there. <laughs> But uh, alas, my my brief stint of immortality was ruined when they tore it up and, and repaved it. So, <laughs> in oh, any case, what a well, bummer, man! I know. Well, let's go ahead and just get right on into this. I'm going to start up with the first plot line that shows up in the series in the episode, just because it does tie into uh, the Michael plot line later. So let's talk about the Dwight and Andy plot line here, and. We've gone through, over the last season, Dwight as Chewbacca, crying and moping and and feeling sorry for himself after Angela's left, and, I don't know, not really that funny. This episode, he's back to form, and he's, like, really geared up. You know, after dinner party, I guess, he's, he's trying to make his move, he's doing whatever he can to discredit Andy, sort of like what Andy was doing to him in season three, to try to mm-hmm. you know, discredit him in Michael's eyes. Uh, he's pulling out all the big guns, and what better way to uh, win the accountant's love than show his mastery of money? Andy and Angela seem very happy. I hope nothing horrible ever happens to them. This car is crap. I will buy it for next to nothing. How next to? Well, here are your options. You can sell it for parts, drive it off a cliff, or you can sell it to me, and I'll use it as I would a wagon on my farm. It'll be towed by a donkey. 
Do I have to pick one of those? Yes. Can you go over those options again? Hey, you know what? You knock $1,500 off the price right now, and I will take it off your hands. It's got to be now. Well, I have the deal. The blue Let's book values. It. Let's do this thing. Three, two, one. Think, now, now, now. Say it. it. Do it, it now. It. Do it now. Do it. Shake my hand. You will sell me this car. Shake my hand. Yeah. All right. Now you know why Dwight's the number one salesman in uh, the Dunder Mifflin organization. That was scary, but brilliant. <laughs> he totally dominates uh, Andy there. It's just hilarious. At, you know, Andy, his character, ever since the anger management, they've really sort of backed away from the angry young man. He's not been on a good streak, and he choked last week, and he's choking here again. <laughs> yeah, it's not that great. You know, he's, he's trying to be, they, they sort of reposition him as to want to be Dwight's friend. And so he's uh, maybe, you know, he's been his confidant. He's been telling him about his adventures with Angela all this last season. And, um, you know, maybe he wants to do him a deal. Buddy Dwight is going to hook him up with his ex-Terra. I don't know. I just Every time I hear that speech where he's talking about his different options for what he can do with the car, <laughs> you can drive it off a cliff. Or you could give it to someone who you want to have a fatal car crash. <laughs> I don't know. It's it's pure comedy gold there, and uses his Jedi mind sales tricks on the weak-minded Mr. Bernard. Unfortunately, I guess, it's all been in the pursuit of revenge against Andy. rock a doop a doop a doop sack a Oh, what's Dwight up to? Oh, probably nothing. rock a doop a what the hell is this all about? You're flipping my car for profit. It's my car now. I gave you a deal. Yeah, well, seller beware. Now, if you'll excuse me, I've got to monitor a three-way bidding war for my car on eBay. I've got a mad lip for you. A stupid numbskull named Andy Bernard sold his Xterra to a smart and capable man named Dwight. This is shaping up to be an awesome day for Dwight. An awesome day for us to see Dwight and his uh, little wife beater there <laughs> washing down the car. Yeah, uh, very, very sexy move there by Dwight. <laughs> I love his little uh, acapella rip there on Andy as well. Yeah, I thought the Mad Lib thing was kind of funny as a as a kind of a revenge piece, but I didn't think that the first Mad Lib scene was... I didn't get that. I didn't think it was funny at all, and so I don't know if it was worth the payoff, other I mean, than you got to see Angela a little bit more sort of fawning over Andy and well, his stupid mad libs. You've been saying, you know, you were saying the other day that we've never seen the two of them actually act as a couple, and so there's that was a nice little scene of them smiling and being happy together. I think, if nothing else, it just reflects like how bland and utterly boring <laughs> that Angela is. <laughs> The only, uh, yes, three, the only three adjectives she could think of are nice, tall, and good or something. So yeah, Dwight gets his revenge, flips the car, you know, mocks the acapella singing there. Um, and they had a little shot then over as this was going on, as Dwight was owning Andy there. They moved the camera over to Angela, who gives a little look. I'm not really sure what that uh, meant or signified, but of course she's got to... Uh, feel the power, right? Yeah, well, the other thing I'd like to, to talk about is, what's the deal with Dwight? He's supposed to be this top salesman, but he spent all day trying to flip this car. And <laughs> we'll talk about Ryan later, about Jim and his goofing off, but again, once again, what is Dwight doing at the office? I mean, give him credit. He bought 
the car for a $1,500 discount, sold it for at least $99.95, that which is at least $27.95 in profit. Could be more even with the, the bidding war. So give credit to Dwight for making some good change there in one day, but still, he's not doing any work in the office. Well, I'm sure Dwight's only doing this on his authorized break period and lunch lunch hour. I suppose. So. <laughs> I'm sure he has that, that org chart. That's that's not something he had to create on the day. He had that produced and, and ready to go in a moment's notice for months now, I'm sure. So there you go. I mean, that's basically the Andy and Dwight plot line for the episode. Now, where is this going to lead? I mean, are we predicting, as we've said, are we predicting a Dwight and Angela reunion by the end of the season? You know what I would like? I would like Andy and Angela to break up, but for Dwight and Angela not to get back together. Well, that might actually make sense because, as we've said before, you know, the show's kind of broken off into these four different couples, and, and maybe we need to sort of uncouple it a little bit. But I'm predicting... I mean, they've been saying that there's going to be a there's going to be an engagement in the finale, and I'm saying that... The Jim and Pam thing, I don't really think that's going to happen. It's just too obvious. You are high if you don't think that they're going to get engaged. <laughs> I think it's just too obvious. I don't know. I, I, I don't think they're going to go for it. It's got to be something more complex than that. If Jim doesn't propose by the end of the season, there will be picketing in the streets. Well, I'm not saying he's not going to propose, I'm, but I'm still saying that she's going to somehow say no. I don't oh. think that it's going to go through. I think that there is going to be an engagement, and if there is going to be one, my money is going to be on Duangela getting back together. <laughs> so we'll see how that plays out. I, 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 I've said this before. I don't want it to be Michael and Jan. Jim and Pam, I, I just can't see them getting having it go that perfectly. I, I, something's going to come up, especially with Jim and Ryan and everything else. I have a feeling some kind of big trauma is going to pop up in the finale. A woman definitely has hurt you in your life. That's all I have to say. <laughs> no, I'm just uh, a savvy television viewer, my friend. It's too too happy and too wonderful. We need conflict. Conflict is the root of all drama. Well, speaking of conflict... <laughs> yes, indeed. Let's just head on over to the... Michael plotline, really the main plotline, as you said, of the episode here. And Michael, just in his usual self, you know, we in a typical boardroom meeting after uh, <laughs> after humiliating Pam. I, I, did you enjoy that return to the earlier season Pam humiliation? Absolutely. Pretty cruel, pretty harsh. I gotta say, <laughs> she's going in the opposite direction. I and, thought that was great. <laughs> And in the meeting, I love it. We'll play it in a second. She's obviously uh, given up all hope. <laughs> well, Michael introduces here kind of the concept of what what he's doing and what he's looking for, and this is what really leads us into our main Michael versus Stanley showdown. So, how are we going to energize our office? I mean, I haven't done anything since Christmas. Pam clearly has just given up trying. Anybody have any ideas what we could do? Any suggestions? Yes, Andy. What if we changed our outgoing answering machine message so it just had a little more zing and a little more pep? I like this. Maybe a whole theme, like a rap, a rap rhyme. An urban thing. An urban? Yeah. Stanley, you want to help us out with that? Not me. Yes, you. Come on, Stanley. Put your little game down and, and join the group. No. Stanley, we're do having a little Leave brain me alone, damn we're having it. a brainstorm session. Did I stutter? Good. This is good. I'm going to grab a glass of water. So a couple of things in there. For one thing, maybe as for why is Stanley upset? Uh, Michael again goes to Stanley with the urban, 
Irvin connection there. So he racial insult enough to put him over the edge. No, I th- of course, Michael being insensitive there. Although, like you were saying, it could have gotten really scary. But then when Michael had to leave, I think that was enough of a way to cut the tension a little bit that didn't make it quite so serious as it maybe could have been in a different kind of show. So I, I like that aspect. And yeah, what's going to happen now that Stanley has uh, laid down the gauntlet like that? We'll have to see. <laughs> You know, Michael, we've talked about this before. He's basically just sort of a scared child. Uh, we, we talked about that he's sort of an arrested, developed uh, 13-year-old or whatever. He does not want to deal with conflict, so Stanley kind of calls him out. Rather than dealing with it right then and there and sort of, you know, bringing him to task for talking that way or disciplining him in the meeting, he just, his first instinct is to run, you know. <laughs> just like, you know, he and Flunderson maybe have more in common than they might think, but... He runs out of the room, has to go get a drink of water, and everyone's just kind of stunned, as are we. I mean, we haven't really seen anyone give this sort of reaction, and this is maybe a more realistic reaction that, that people might have to someone like Michael in the real world. Yeah, I think so. And I, Especially from Stanley, this is really out of character for him to actually be confrontational instead of just ignoring everything that's around him. And again, I thought it was a great turn. After four seasons, we're starting to get used to the same old habits. We're going to change it up a little bit. I thought this was a great move. The only other thing in there, remember we talked about this last week, they have another damn reference to Christmas. I haven't done anything since Christmas. What happened at Christmas? Yeah, that is kind of uh, annoying, isn't it? Maybe next year they'll do, like like in Lost, where you go back in time and revisit something. Maybe they'll do something like that. Yeah, Dwight will be the ghost of Christmas past, and we'll flash back to 2007 and see what happened. And this is the thing that I guess is sort of another interesting angle to this, that Toby, despite, again, what some people on the blog page thought of Toby this episode, he really sort of, he's a nice guy. He's kind of looking out for Michael. He doesn't want Michael to be abused. He knows that Stanley stepped over the line, and and he wants to help Michael deal with it. And unfortunately for him, Michael... uh, just lays on the Flenderson hate. Uh, I really think that you need to address what happened with Stanley this morning. That in the conference room? Yeah. We were joshing around, the two of us, and he said, did I stutter? And I said, whoa, 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 what, dog? was joking. He didn't seem like he was joking. Well, you don't get it, because Stanley is a beautiful, sassy, powerful black man, and you're you. If you had any friends, you would understand. Friends joke with one another. You're so white. If you really believe that Stanley was joking, mm-hmm. um, why don't we go ask him now? Okay, I will. I'm not feeling very well right now, though. My stomach hurts, so I may be going home early today. But You know, Michael, so sometimes my daughter's stomach hurts when there's a mean girl at school. Well, sometimes my stomach hurts when you come into my office. So it's probably psychological. So he has a little bit of an insight there. <laughs> Not quite uh, relating it to him and Stanley, but still. Yeah, I, I, you know, I'd like to think that, that Toby was acting in everyone's best interest. I guess it wouldn't surprise me to think that he thought, well, <laughs> there's this confrontation. Let's see if you know what will happen if we continue to have these two characters go at odds with each other instead of just ignoring it like we usually do. It's you know too bad that Michael has this long history of hating Toby because in some respects <laughs> that, that was good advice. Right. Although the fact that he did not take the advice is only better for us because now Michael will do something different that would be more uh, comedic. <laughs> so 
Yeah, pretty much. And, you know, that's the thing in there, too. I like that he again criticized them, and in his mind, he invents this big dialogue that they had. And I was like, no, dog, what are you talking about? (laughs) And all that stuff. Yeah, we were just joshing around, and he's created this whole fantasy world there in his mind where he and uh, that sassy, powerful black man, and, uh, (laughs) you know, you're so white. Yeah. If you had any friends, you'd understand. It's, uh, it's just brutal in his criticism. So I, you know, hats off to Toby. As uh, the office and philosophy guy and I once discussed, you know, he is sort of the Jesus guy in the office there. I suppose. I'll, I guess the NAACP is not going to give this episode an image award anytime soon. <laughs> well, so, I mean, basically, like I said, we kind of have this situation set up there where Michael is sort of like the little guy being bullied at school, and he's got to stand up to the mean guy. And, again, avoiding conflict if ever possible, Michael looks to Dwight to uh, to see if there's any way he can weasel out of this situation without actually having to deal with Stanley. Jim is in charge of Stanley only in sales-related matters. Uh, there is this yellow zigzag that does give Ryan the authority to discipline Stanley. Great. However, in so doing, it zigs past your name, hence zagging you and making you appear weak. Is there anybody up here, anybody at all, that can deal with this? You. Other than me? Well, there is the emergency disaster mode for the org chart. This gives me full authority over every single person in the office. I never said you could All you have to do is say it. I'm... Just say it. I'll think about it. Say it. Just do it. Don't think. Say it. Do it. Five, four, three, two, do it. This office needs a strong man. Say it. No. So... All right. Well, you're going to have to deal with this yourself. We talked about already how awesome that whole thing is, and... The big overlay, the Dwight Emergency Contingency Org chart there where uh, he has control over everyone, his family members somehow step in (laughs) as his next uh, command line where we get Moe's and then his mother and father. Um, and then, like I said, Shirley and Heindel, whoever those two people might be. The warehouse people go in lockdown. <laughs> yeah, Andy's crossed out. Exactly. And uh, aside from the fact that it was just hilarious, and, and there's a nice callback there then to the negotiation with the car. You know, this, he tries the same exact tactics on Michael. And also kind of a connection back to the coup from season three. Oh, I promise I'll give you control back, you know, after... After I give it up, and maybe that's why Michael actually says no this time. I'm not sure. but And that's the thing. I was talking about that before. Those, those moments where I was afraid that the show is going to go off the rails. And it's been, I feel like it, it, it would have been so easy and such a kind of a cliche if Michael would have just said, okay. And then Dwight would have taken over, and then Dwight would have been Mr. Nazi guy, and everyone would have got upset, and you know, blah, blah, blah. I don't know. I was surprised and relieved and quite happy, I guess, with that moment there that Michael finally stands up and says no. You know, he realizes that he does have to actually deal with this himself. He doesn't want to get zagged by the yellow line there. You know, I have to admit, I was giggling like a giddy schoolgirl when Michael said yes there and I didn't quite get the whole car thing but then once that scene came by I understood it completely and I just loved Michael standing up and maybe growing a little bit and uh, good move by there by Dwight very funny stuff Uh, besides the chart just the way he just packs his stuff stuff up and leaves and and, uh, you know he tried and well all right 
We'll yeah. move on to something else. Another failed coup attempt by uh, by Dwight there. I'm surprised again he didn't sort of try to install Angela perhaps as his queen. <laughs> Maybe he'll have to modify the chart after uh, they get back together. Anyway, very hilarious scene right there. Another huge Dwight scene. And he's been dominating these last couple episodes, and I'm not complaining one bit. I'm loving that guy. No, I, I, Dwight hasn't always been my favorite character, but he's been on fire the last few weeks, and he's been doing great. Well, after having gone to Dwight for advice and not finding any helpful tidbits there, Michael then goes to the next most senior guru in the complex. Daryl, have you ever been in a gang? I uh, I knew it. Okay. What are we talking about here? Crips, Bloods? Both. God. Yeah, them and the Latin Kings. The Warriors. Okay. Newsies. So dig this. You're on the street, and one of your gang disses you. So what do you do to get them to make it right? In the gang world, we use something called fluffy fingers. That's where somebody really gets in your face. You know, you just start tickling them. Really? Yeah. And he starts tickling you. You know, pretty soon you laughing and hugging. Before you know it, you've forgotten the whole thing. Y'all can just go to church together and get ice cream cone. I would have never mm. thought that gangs would be tickling each other. That's a fact of And, Kevin, I've gone on record as not being a big, huge fan of Daryl Philbin. And one of the big reasons that I'm not a huge fan of him, as I said before, is he's just, he's always set up as, as this sort of perfect guy who never does anything wrong. He's always kind of looking down on everyone else in the office and especially looking down on Michael and we've seen him many times give Michael the fake gangster stuff the zippity zoppity whatever give me the poppity from the, <laughs> the from last season from the negotiation and all that kind of stuff and this is again where I thought the episode was just going to go so wrong I kind of covered my eyes and said, you know what, if, I swear to God, if Michael goes back upstairs and if he tickles Stanley, I'm going to lose it. Maybe it's that growth again that you're talking about, but Michael, he wises up, doesn't follow through on, uh, on Daryl's obviously bogus advice. Yeah, although I, I thought that scene was really, really funny, and I, I haven't been a big <laughs> fan of Daryl either, but there were all kinds of little bits there that I just thought were hilarious, and all the different types of gangs, and, you know, yeah. that's a Craig Robinson improv, I'm sure, and all the, just the Fluffy Fingers concept and Michael's wide-eyed wonderment. Like, wow, I would have never guessed. Like, oh, that's a fact, you know. It's yeah. effective, you know. So I well, thought that was all really, really well done. It is impressive that Daryl is a member of the Crips and the Bloods and the Latin Kings and <laughs> the Warriors and the Newsies. Don't forget those guys. I'm surprised he didn't throw the Jets and the Sharks in there. Yeah, I mean, again, Michael... You can you can blame I guess you can't blame Daryl for kind of zinging him because Michael once again assumes oh he's a black guy so he must be in the gang so but again you know even even his kind of as usual insensitivity there you know he's obviously looking for some real advice and can't go to the D man for any kind of help <laughs> well that's Dwight's failed Daryl has failed so it's up to Michael to uh, kind of invent his own way of dealing with Stanley and it's everyone just Jim shakes his head everyone shakes their head and Michael's big idea of giving Stanley a fake firing Stanley may I talk to you for a second Stanley Hudson you are fired are you serious I am 
serious. We are all serious. You are fired like a heart attack. You're firing me over three words. Yeah. Have you lost your mind? Do you think I'm going to let you do this to me? Hmm. I've watched you screw up this office for 10 years, and I'm filing a lawsuit, and I'm going to tell them about every stupid thing you've ever done up in this office. All right, all right, okay. You know what? Now you know how I feel. This was a fake firing. Lesson learned. Good work, everybody. Very nice. <laughs> Lesson learned. Now he tells him, you know, he has to learn a little humility and all this other stuff. And I like the at the beginning before we, you know, part of the episode that I didn't have in the clip there is where Michael tells everyone that he's going to do a fake firing, and then he says, you know, it's the only thing I have left. And Toby says, well, you could actually, actually fire him, <laughs> but Michael will have none of it. You know, we we've heard that before. He doesn't like Donald Trump because he says everyone, you know, you're fired, and he That's doesn't right. want to be that guy. So. He wants to try to bring that errant child back into the fold. You know, he really honestly doesn't understand why Stanley doesn't like him. And we've seen that so many times before. But this is, I guess, this is, again, why some people had some problems with the episode. Uh, Stanley is very, you know, he just kind of goes off on him uh, very venomously. And, you know, it's probably good reason there, I guess, if you got fake fired at your job. I'm not really sure how you'd react to that uh mock execution, I think, as Michael compared it to. Yeah, and that's exactly the type of thing that, you know, when you say, oh, no, I'm just kidding, that you usually don't <laughs> laugh after that, right? <laughs> well, you know, like, I just love as Michael is so concerned, oh, lesson learned, all right, everything's back to normal. <laughs> Whatever possibly that supposedly got across, I don't know what lesson he thought that was going to teach Stanley, but... Okay, see, I could have fired you, but because you said this comment, and now that I'm un not firing you, you won't say that comment again, I guess. But yeah, see, I don't even think he had it thought out that well. That, that at least would have uh, sort of made sense. I don't really... I, I don't know. You know, what lesson was he supposed to learn? Uh, not, not very clear, and unfortunately, oh man, Stanley is just getting warmed up. So I'm not fired. That's it. Do you have anything to say to me? Oh, yes, I do. You are out of your damn little pea-sized mind. What is wrong with you? Do you have any sense at all? Okay. Do you have any idea how to run an office? Yes. Every day you do something stupider than you did the day before. That's and I think right. there's no possible right. way right. he can right. top that. Okay. But what do you do? You find a way, damn it, to top it. You are a professional idiot. Hey, stop it! Okay, everybody out. Who? Yeah, everybody, except Stanley. Ooh, ooh, ooh. It's Michael versus Stanley, and it is the clash of the titans. In one corner, you have Michael, and he is mad. And then in the other corner, you have Stanley, and he's mad. So that's about it. <laughs> I love that line there from Kevin's awesome. You know, it's a thing. It, Michael is very pissed and like kind of, I guess maybe like Crispin Glover in Back to the Future. He's had just about enough of Stanley's abuse and he finally kind of finds his balls and tries to put a stop to that just torrent of abuse. And he tries to take it at first with sort of good humor. But as it builds and builds and builds, even Michael can't avoid conflict any longer. Well, no, and he's got to deal with it because, I mean, there's a lot of venom being thrown there towards Michael, and a lot of it's well-deserved, of course, so I thought that was a, just a really effective scene, not 
particularly funny, but I loved every every second of that scene. And give Leslie David Baker, give him an Emmy nod for that. I think that was awesome. <laughs> well, it was you know his episode to shine this season. So I don't know. He waits. He wait, waits around, and finally he actually gets an episode where he can do more than just sit there with this crossword puzzle book. Now, I, now, before we get to the final confrontation, I want to ask you about Kevin's comments there about the two fighters and all that. We had a lot of critique about the five families narration. Uh, I was going to bring what, that up. What did you think of this narration here by Kevin? Oh, no, I was going to actually bring up the fact that did you look at the sign behind Kevin? Yes, there were eight total businesses, yep, including and, one available space. And about three of those weren't mentioned in the five families episode and a couple of them that were mentioned weren't on the list so i'm assuming that that list that they've had there's been kind of up in the set probably for the last four years yeah but after they made such a big deal out of the five families thing you know wb jones was on there uh vance refrigeration was on there cress was on there but you know cool guy paul was not on there no. And um I'm trying to think of anyone else but yeah and then we had a couple other ones like they said one one was vacant and there was a uh, some kind of data services and, and and one other business I think that wasn't on the list. So, oh man, that that, that would have been a lot, a little bit of nice con- continuity, I guess, if they would have kind of fixed the sign there. But I thought that was great. I don't know. I thought he was a little more realistic, I guess, in this uh, blow by blow. And I just love the line where he's, he's so excited, but he doesn't really know where to go with it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, I agree with you. I think that that was a, it was effective. And it was very believable as something Kevin would get really excited about, but he's not really quite sure why or yeah. what's going to happen there. Well, and a good, another good way to cut the tension, they had a commercial break there uh, during that whole confrontation between Michael and Stanley, too. And, again, it was real nice the way they, they just kept it going. Well, Kevin, one of the things we talked about last week was the idea that we thought it would have been interesting, or at least I thought it would have been kind of clever if they would have played around with Michael and the camera crew in the the nightclub and some of the people on the blog page kind of took us to, took me to task i guess on that saying that i was just expecting too much out of the show that and mm-hmm. you know we, we can't expect that the real world's going to always react to cameras and that just would cause too many issues and too many problems and i agree in a certain extent in that one case i did think it would maybe it would have been kind of clever if they would have played with it now Sometimes the show wants to ignore the camera people. Sometimes they embrace it. And in this episode, we get kind of an uh, an interesting nod again to the camera people where we have the camera people sneaking in to film the final confrontation there with Stanley. Now, did you notice that? What did you think about that scene? Well, I just thought it was, it was very uh, appropriate that you had mentioned it last week. And yet here again is another example of them going out of their way to show that the camera crews are a camera crew as opposed to sort of becoming invisible. And uh, I think it blends even more credence to your critique last week. I just thought it was interesting because you said, you know, they, they, they bring it up when they want to, they ignore it when they want to, and I guess it's the way they have to have to kind of play it out. And I thought it was pretty effective in this scene because it's something that they wouldn't necessarily want to have on camera. So congratulations to the team there, I guess, for catching this final moment here. And I always talk about redemption for Michael and this my friends, is one of the reasons why I really, really love this episode. I don't understand why you keep picking on me. Oh, for the love of God. You just do, and I don't know why. So please help me understand. You are a person I do not respect. The things you say, your actions, your methods and style, everything you would do, I would do it the opposite way. 
Well, Stanley, maybe you are feeling that you don't respect me because you don't know me very well. Michael, I've known you a very long time. And the more I've gotten to know you, the less I've come to respect you. Any other theories? All right, you don't respect me. I accept that. But listen to me. You can't talk to me that way in this office. You just can't. I am your boss. Can't allow it. Fair enough. I am a good person, and sometimes good people don't get no respect. Rodney Dangerfield. Hey, I don't get no respect. No respect at all. Before we get into talking about that final scene there with uh, the Rodney Dangerfield impersonation, again, I you know, this is a moment where, okay, Michael kind of starts off being kind of a dummy. He's always been about the office's family. He always thinks of the office as his friends. He can never make the business and the personal separate in his mind. It's always the same thing. He always wants, like we had in that one other episode earlier in the season, it's not like I want approval. I have to have it. I don't, you know, what is it? I don't need it, but I have to have it. Right. Um, whatever that quote was. And so he, you know, he's always been this guy that's just so, so wanting to please and he cannot have anyone think badly of him. And he finally grows up. He grows up, he faces the bully, he accepts the fact that Stanley, okay, if you don't respect me, you don't respect me. And then he lays a dot on the line as a very competent, calm, and collected individual and gives us one of those moments that show us why this guy is a boss in a business and not just some you know bumbling fool that uh, has no reason to be where he is. So I, I love that scene and love that moment there where Michael stands up. Uh, that was great, too. But great for both of those actors doing a great job there. And, and I guess I would say that, you know, Stanley is in some respects bullying Michael, but it's, in some respects he's also pushing back at the insensitivity that I'm sure Stanley especially must be feeling with some of the comments that Michael makes. And so some of that pushback, I think, is appropriate uh, the, the way he did it in the meeting room with everyone else, I think, not so appropriate. But uh, it's good that they finally had the conversation, and I agree with you. This is the growing up moment for Michael Scott. You know, maybe the next step is to date a woman who's not a 10. <laughs> yeah, maybe someone with non-Crawford-esque features that might be <laughs> in his future. Now, I don't know. We'll see if any of that carries over, actually, to further episodes. But at that moment, again, despite what Stanley says, I can't help but feeling that at least he, at that moment, he does pull himself back and does maybe give Michael a tiny bit of grudging respect. They go on their way, and things seem to have reached that balance. You know, where, hey, it's okay, you don't like me, but you do have to treat me like the boss. So Now, one of the things that was very controversial... <laughs> Aside from the tone of the episode and the kind of the overall non-humor aspect of that last plotline and the tension and everything else, lots and lots of people just hated that extended montage there of Michael doing his Rodney Dangerfield riff. Um, you brought up kind of an interesting theory to me about that, and you want to go over it? Well, what he's doing, he, he starts out with the Rodney Dangerfield, and he's just riffing. He's trying to be funny for the camera, and he goes into Henny Youngman, take my wife, please. He goes into, you know, you might, if you don't get respect, you might be a redneck, Jeff Foxworthy. Your respect is nice, which is Borat, and then the Great Nuts, which is the Seinfeld, and then comes all the way back into Rodney Dangerfield. Michael Scott, he, he can, he's an he's a improv aficionado. He's, <laughs> he's interested in comedians. He's got all these things in his mind, and they all just come flowing out in the scene. 
Now, I am someone, I'm a little older than maybe the average viewer is. I understood all of those references. If people did not understand those references, it probably wouldn't have been as interesting. And I think that that's, this scene in particular is the one where I think if you love the scene, you probably love the episode. If you hate the scene, you might be going the other way. I, I thought it was really good. And I'm not a big fan of the, you know, a lot of these extended improvisational things that they sometimes do. But I thought this one was good. And, uh, again, a history of comedians right there in one minute or less. <laughs> well, I think I mean, I, I'm going to take uh, a different stance than you did on that because I actually loved most of the episode. But my initial viewing, I really really disliked that scene and I think the reason for it is that it is very very long and it's painful I mean it really is kind of painful to watch and you're watching Michael Scott they're just kind of fumbling with trying to be funny and not being funny and just failing so miserably and just keeping it going like I don't know what his mind what his process says if he just if he thinks that he is being funny or he's just, he doesn't really know how else to deal with what's going on and to kind of retreat into that world there. Um, I don't know. It's kind of a sad scene. Watching it the second and third time through, it didn't feel as long as it felt on the first Thursday. I think it's also that same sort of Seinfeld, no lessons thing. I mean, we've had this great moment where Michael steps forward and he matures a little bit, but then we take one step right back with his typical Michael Scott trying to be funny and can't quite pull it together moment. That leads us into the final after the credits part of the show. And again, some people thought this was a little lame. I thought this was funny. I thought this was pretty hilarious. So I'm thinking, as a reward for our loyal clients, that we contact their assistants and we find out where they live. And then we go to their houses in the middle of the summer and go caroling. It is a summer Christmas celebration. And we call it a summer sales a lot. Feedback? Anybody? Stanley? Has potential to be your best idea yet. That's the dumbest thing I ever heard. <sighs> Damn it, Phyllis. All right, everybody out except Phyllis. <laughs> I don't know. I, lo I love that play on that, the, the payoff of that scene there where Phyllis is 100% correct, and all of us know that that's the stupidest thing we've ever heard. I wasn't really kind of, I wasn't really sure how that was going to play out originally as I was watching it, but I, I got a big laugh out of that line there. Um, maybe again, kind of undercutting the fact that Michael hasn't really learned anything. He's going to now do that with every employee that says anything negative. Well, and certainly Phyllis is among the people that needs a talking to in terms of respect, because she is one of the most negative people <laughs> in the office, not just to Michael, but to others as well. All right, well, that leaves us one more kind of dangling plot line, and I'm going to lump all the jam stuff kind of in a big hodgepodge collection here. Um, Pam and Jim actually have kind of separate plot lines. And the first one here... Um, we talked about this kind of before, you know, do Pam and Jim, we know they don't live together, but uh, do they spend the night at each other's houses? Well, it wasn't mentioned, but apparently they do. And that leads Pam into sort of a sticky situation here at work. Um, yeah, I slept over at a uh, friend's house and I forgot my contact solution, so I had to wear my backup glasses. Shut up. All right, everybody. Oh, my God, Pam. Those make you look so ugly. Um, Pam, in order to get hotter, you take glasses off. You're moving in the wrong direction. I don't have a uh, I'm bad. Melanie, I can't even hear you. It's just noise coming out of an ugly scientist. <laughs> 
That's like the cruelest thing. I don't know. Uh, Michael hasn't been that mean to Pam in quite a while. So. Well, I think that it was very important for that scene to be in there, again, giving the you know learning and lessons that happen later in the episode. And it is uh, kind of a nod back to some of the earlier episodes where, uh, especially in season one, where Michael would do a lot of picking on Pam. And I thought that that was funny, and, uh, you know, it's similar to a deleted scene with Phyllis, so I think that this is why they kept this one in the episode and didn't use that other one. Well, this and also, aside from the fact that it's kind of funny and Michael being sort of really mean to Pam is also kind of funny, um, it, I, according to people on the blog page, and, and myself included, it's actually a very relatable plot line. Um, my backup glasses are held together with a rubber band and some rubber cement, actually. So they're even worse than, than pants. And heaven forbid if I ever lose or damage one of my contacts, I'm going to have some problems, i got to say. Another week, Kevin, another fake proposal by Jim. Uh, it, it, is it warming the cockles of your heart, or are you over it? I am enjoying every delicious moment of every fake proposal. Uh, if it went on for a whole another season, it'd be fine by me. Uh, like I said, I expected it'll end by the end of the season. That's just fine. But I thought this was another great fake proposal, and uh, you know, keep them coming till the end of the season. Well, I, I yeah, the end of the season might be just about enough. I can't really <laughs> after the first time. I mean, the first time I'll give it to you. This, it's getting a little bit less uh, funny, I guess, each time, but. We do find out some interesting information in that scene. I don't know if we've ever known this before. Maybe I'm just forgetting it. We we get Pam's middle name thrown in there. Oh, right. Yeah, what was that? Uh, I believe it was Pamela Morgan Beasley. Okay, all right. <laughs> so, more, wor- <laughs> more work in the Wikipedia article. Well, and, this is the, and we've seen this before. Because uh, we've gotten this in other episodes where Pam has dressed nicer, and then the other guys in the office kind of creep her out. Well, surprisingly enough, <laughs> even the ugly, funky-ass, old uh, librarian lady glasses still get her some leers and jeers from the guys in the office. Hey, Pam. I really like your glasses. Oh, thanks. All the girlfriends that I've ever had have worn glasses. Oh, Okay. Yeah, it's kind of a turn-on for me, actually. I should probably like get back. Like librarians? Entering the... Could you just say, these are due back Thursday? No. A lot of jazz cats are blind, but they can play the piano like nobody's business. I'd like to put the piano in front of Pam without her glasses and see what happens. I'd also like to see her topless. God bless <laughs> you, Creed. So would we all, wouldn't we? <laughs> I'd like to, yeah. <laughs> And the and you know to hear her try to play the piano as well. So yeah, play the piano topless. That might be the winning combination. So yeah, Ryan, uh, Kevin's great line, and we find out a little too much about him, perhaps than we originally wanted to. But we do know that, you know, it's been a lonely, lonely few months for uh, Mr. Kevin Malone. <laughs> so I have to rely on something to get him through those long winter nights, and his librarian fantasies might just do the trick. Well, this next part, now the, the Pam and the glasses thing kind of got short-shrifted this this episode, and it really got fleshed out in the deleted scenes. We'll play that in just a minute. But this last scene, again, aside from the Michael and Stanley stuff, this la- this next scene here was, again, very very powerful and a lot of dramatic stuff, a lot of dramatic tension going on there, and really brought up a lot of questions as far as where is the rest of the season 
going to play out here. Uh, once again, Ryan visits the office, has a little something to say to old Jim. Uh, listen, while I have you here with Toby, I need to give you a formal warning about your job performance. A formal warning? <laughs> it's actually not a joke. I know how you spend your time here. I know how little you care about your job. And honestly, if you spend as much time selling as you do goofing around with Dwight and hanging out at reception, we wouldn't be having this conversation. I'm sorry, is, is this because I talked to Wallace about your website? Because I really didn't mean to go over your head. This has nothing to do with that, all right? I'm sorry, then do you mind explaining it a little better? Because I'm not sure what's really... Whoa, don't get all defensive, all right? It's just a warning. If you want the details, Toby can provide. I'd say all the goofing around at Pam's desk and, and hanging out with Pam finally caught up to him you know, with Pam. Now, Kevin, I, I, don't know the, I don't know how you read this scene, but uh, a lot of people on the blog page commented that they somehow thought that Toby had narked on Jim because of his Pam infatuation. Now, to me, I didn't read it that way at all when I was watching the show originally. I don't know. Did you pick up on that at all? No, I didn't. I did not read it that way. I thought it was Ryan came in, and I think Toby was all too happy to play along. Right. But I think it was all Ryan's doing. I agree, and that was my take on the scene. I, you know, despite what Ryan says, this is a hundred percent. Indeed, it is payback for what happened and what Jim said to David Wallace. And Ryan even last week told him, "Hey, Jim, watch your back." You know, I'm just kidding. Um, what makes more sense than now he's going after him, you know? He's going after Jim, giving him a warning. And it, the thing that's kind of sad about it is that we know he's he's correct. I mean, he is correct about Jim and his commitment to the job and all the things that he's done. Um, some other people on the blog page mentioned, well, you know, he, he Jim must be doing something right. He's getting promotions and that he's getting... Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he always kind of he always makes his sales numbers and everything else. And I, you know, I, again, I agree, but I think this kind of this situation here kind of plays into what I've been looking for, what I've been talking about all of season four. Here is we're getting kind of a crisis, I think, of where Jim is going to have to kind of you know look at himself and kind of maybe reevaluate what he's doing or where he wants to be or what's going to happen. Um, some people are predicting that one of the big cliffhanger things is that he might end up getting fired at the end of the ep- at the end of the season, um, mm. or you know I don't know I, I just definitely this little meeting here really adds a lot of grist to the mill I guess of what might happen in the season finale. So a very interesting turn of events. Yeah, I think the key line there was you don't care about your job, and this is the thing where we talked about Michael maybe growing up now is Jim going to grow up and actually care about his job or not. And I agree with you that I don't know that Jim should be singled out amongst all the other screw-ups in the office in terms of not getting work done. Uh, we've talked about Dwight. We've talked about all the other people that are, you know, always doing something. Creed, what's he doing at work? Um, but <laughs> obviously Jim could work a little bit harder in, around the office, that's for sure. Uh, but at the same time, it does seem like Ryan's kind of being, uh, you know, singling him out. And so, again, I think that there's going to be some sort of conflicted by the end of the season but the the thing about it the more and more I look at both Jim and Pam the more I think there's no future for either of them in Scranton and that what must happen is that Ryan must get fired and Jim and Pam move to headquarters in New York and (laughs) of course that would be impossible on the show right because you can't have the show take place in two places right unless you have a spinoff 
<laughs> no, they they're not going to take the two of those characters away from the show. I don't know. If, if you crazier things have been said on this podcast by people other than me <laughs> than Jim and Pam getting their own show. Well, we've already That's talked about that. Jim loves Pam. There you go. Uh, no, I, I, I will say that I highly doubt that that would happen. I don't think that they could actually make that show work. I agree with you, though, that this is kind of the tightrope that they've, they're walking, is that Jim doesn't take the job seriously, and really, why should he? That's the point. The only reason he's ever been here is because of Pam, and Pam really has no reason to stay anymore, because she was only there sort of because of Jim. Um, or Roy. And exactly, and now that they're kind of together, neither of them needs to be there. Neither of them right. needs that job. Both of them could find jobs elsewhere. And But then that leads to the question that we don't have a show anymore. So I don't know. Um, I don't know what's going to happen. I, you know, it, it's definitely thrown up a lot of questions for the season finale. So I guess we will we'll have to watch and find it, out. It certainly looks like the writers are painting themselves into a corner with these two characters. So I am going to be interested to see how they... Uh, what they do to get them out. All right, well, let's take a look at the deleted scenes here. We have uh, two scenes. Both of them are pretty funny, and like I said, I kind of wish that they would have had room in the show to fit these in there. Um, the first one is uh, basically the entire Pam Glasses plot line, um, and uh, the last one is Michael kind of talking to the other guys in the office and maybe projecting a little bit on uh, Stanley. Pam, stand up. Hi, everyone. My name is Pam, and I wear glasses. Hi, Pam. Hi, Pam. Pretty disgusting. I like your frames. Thanks, Phyllis. Yours, too. Oh, well, I'm already married. Boys don't make passes at girls who wear glasses. Ignore her. Those glasses are so cool. Really? Yeah, you look like Lisa Loeb or Tina Fey or someone. You should definitely wear them all the time. Huh. Maybe I will. Guess who just became the cutest girl in the office? <laughs> What's it like without my glasses? Um, well, here, I'll show you. Unfocus your lens. A lot. I'm 2,400. You got it? Okay. I'm going to spend the rest of the day like this. I can't see any of the things that would bother me on a normal day. I can't see anything disgusting or ugly or Michael. It's great. Yo! Hi, can I help you? Haha, <laughs> nice. I guess I haven't a stranger lately. Ryan. Hey, Pam. You want a bagel? Yeah. Think fast. Honestly, Pam, the bagels in the Ark are the only good bagels in the world, I swear to God. Okay. The only good bagels anywhere. I've heard that. Same with coffee and women. Okay. I'm going to go find Toby. Oh, here's what you do. You scoop out the middle like that, and then you just eat the shell. You know, fewer carbs. Yeah, if I could have seen what he just did, I think I would have gotten angry. You know, I don't care what he did to me. He's mean to other people. That's what gets me. It's just... Who else does he mean to? Everybody. He just, he's always, he's always talking about people behind their backs to me. What kind of stuff does Stanley say? Like the people are stupid and that they're idiots and that they're sluts. Why would he say that? Because he's mean. He's, he's like a really mean-spirited guy. He talks about how gay Oscar is, and that Angela's a midget, and that your chin is too big. I know, I know, I think it's tiny, I think it's too small, if anything, and that your glasses make you look ugly. She's never worn these glasses before. Well, he's just mean. Michael, 
I think that what Stanley did to you was rude. Maybe you should just get him aside and tell him that he was behaving badly. It's complicated, Pam. I mean, the world looks a lot easier from behind your reception desk. Well, I actually agree with her. I think you should talk to him. Yeah. And you also might want to explain to Andy that no one wants to help him decide whether or not he has a rash. Oh, yeah, and then yell at Creed, because you know what? Looking can be as bad as touching. Okay. I put Stanley on a pedestal for a long time, but sometimes he can just be a big, fat jerk. Jerks don't deserve to be on pedestals. Jerks should be placed up somewhere where everybody can see how jerky they are. Big, big marble jerk stand. <laughs> yeah, what, are the, what might something like that be called that you might put someone up there on that? I don't know, but... I, I, there's a lot of good stuff in there. I'm going to take, take it a few things at a time because I, I love that unfocused camera scene. And that was kind of weird, but I thought it was brilliant. I love the way it played out. I have no idea what Dwight was doing <laughs> at his desk. <laughs> Obviously, something kind of maybe creepy or freaky. Creed was like scratching his armpit or something. I could at least kind of make that out. But um, yeah. I, I don't know that that was great. I just thought that was great. I thought that Ryan's assholeness, again, popping in the door there. And <laughs> nice. <laughs> Yeah, he was all kind of manic, like he was all hopped up on coke. Yeah, and still, still talking his big, uh, you know, New York is the best. New York is this. New York is that. And um, and then the stuff with <laughs> just like Michael projecting all that stuff that he was saying about everyone in the office, <laughs> obviously coming from his own mind. You know, Kelly's a slut, and <laughs> Jim has too big of a chin. It, that didn't work for me as much as I think as it did for you, although the advice from Jim and Pam, which of course ended up being what the right advice was, uh, was interesting. Uh, I also liked the scene in the conference room where we actually got Meredith's one good line in the episode, which was cut, which was the, hi Pam, you know, the Alcoholics Anonymous, you know, <laughs> greeting. I thought that was very, very funny. And that's a, that line's always a favorite of mine anyway, so. And again, you see Good that stuff. the the utter cattiness of those women in the office there with I've just become the cutest girl in the office. Uh it's a good uh, a very good line there. Poor poor Pam thinking that she's doing looking like Tina Fey, I guess, in those crazy. Well, and Phyllis being super mean <laughs> once again. Well, I'm already married, so. Uh, any messages? Yeah, just a fact. Oh, Hammond is from corporate. How many times have I told you that there's a special filing cabinet for things from corporate? Yeah. Oh, the waste paper basket. <laughs> <laughs> Did we get a fax this morning? Yeah. Uh, yeah, the one. Why didn't, uh, want to get it? You put it in the garbage cabinet with a special filing cabinet. Yeah, uh, that was a joke. All right, not a whole lot of news this week. A few little tidbits here. Um, Life mirroring art, perhaps. The Xterra that Dwight bought from Andy and then put up on eBay is actually up on eBay, Kevin. Yes, you can own the Xterra as seen in this episode here. Um, The car apparently is owned by one of the hairstylists on the show and has been used as Andy's car for the last season. Um, Included in the bid, if you win the car, you get an autographed script of Did I Stutter, signed by the entire cast. You get a bunch of other little tidbits like Cornell window stickers and other things that have been put on the car. So if if you're interested in really overpaying for a car, (laughs) head on over to that eBay auction and you could own a piece of office history 
I guess. You can uh, go on eBay and just search Office Xterra, or uh, there's a link on the That's What She Said podcast webpage. You know, that's the kind of added value merchandise that NBC is famous for. <laughs> well, in our next news item, Brian Howard over at the Remote Access TV blog continues with his series of interviews. This time he sat down for a chat with Cool Guy Paul of Danger Kits Unlimited. Head over to TWSSpodcast.com for the link. Yep, there you go. And when, like uh, we also got last week, as we said, he had an interview with the tall girl there, the basketball Amazon that was making out with Dwight. So you can, if you can check that one out, you can take a look at both of those cast appearances this week. Now, you apparently have some kind of secret news for me here, but um, BJ Novak is going to be on Conan on May 7th. Jenna Fisher is going to be on Leno on May 8th, and Rain Wilson is going to be on Leno on the 14th. So what do you got for me, Kevin? Well, you know, Matt, did you ever see the movie Sophie's Choice? Uh, yes, I am familiar with, with the dilemma there. Well, we have a Sophie's Choice on May 10th because we have two interesting movies being shown that are related to cast members of The Office. First, on Lifetime, I know, which is one of your favorite channels, <laughs> T- TV movie Mom, Dad, and Her, starring Melora Hardin. Ooh. Uh, uh, Sydney Foster is 15 and is sent to spend the summer with her father and his new wife, played by Melora Hardin, when her volatile behavior finally pushes her mother to the breaking point. <laughs> While at first Sydney lashes out, feeling abandoned yet again, she unexpectedly finds herself connecting with her new stepmother, who is nervously expecting her first child. So uh, Jan's there. Melora Hardin yeah. is a new stepmother there. In our movie, the character of Emma, played by Melora Hardin, reads a book called A Healing Divorce, which advocates using ceremony to transform a divorce into an experience that promotes a healing and growth for both parents and children. Wow, that sounds incredibly, incredibly lame, Kevin. What, what else is it? What's the other choice? Well, this is the other one I think might be a little bit up your alley since you had such a negative reaction to Juno and co-star of the movie, Ellen Page. Well, on Showtime, also on May 10th, An American Crime... This is a movie starring Steve Carell's 40-year-old virgin co-star, Catherine Keener. She plays a desperate and deluded single mom who tortures a sweet teenage boarder played by Juno star Ellen Page. (laughs) According to Entertainment Weekly, Keener cultivates a chilling climate of physical and psychological terror. So I know that'll be right up your alley for our friend Ellen Page. I would pay money to see Ellen Page get tortured, yes, indeed. That sounds (laughs) awesome, awesome, my friend. May 10th. All right, and uh, next week's episode actually sounds like a really good one here. Uh, it's called Job Fair. Uh, air on Thursday, May 8th, and it says Jim hits the links with Andy and Kevin to try to land his biggest client ever. Meanwhile, Michael sets up a booth at a local job fair, which happens to be at Pam's alma mater, to find the best and the brightest for Dunder Mifflin's summer internship. So Andy, Jim, and Kevin on the golf course. It sounds like a pure... Three Stooges-esque comedy gold there, Kevin. There are certain things a boss does not share with his employees. His salary, his bed, and I am not going to tell them that I'll be reading their emails. i got to erase a lot of stuff. Just so you know, if you have any sensitive emails, they need to be deleted immediately. I know. A lot of stuff. All right, let's go to the email bag here. Uh, Pete G. on the blog page said, A great Dwight episode again, and I like the character development with Michael getting bolder and actually acting like a competent boss and a grown adult for once. 
Lots of good unresolved plot lines, like the further proposal attempt with Jim, Dwight messing with Angela, Andy Jilla, and Jim's job woes. I was hoping that Michael would try to chickle Stanley, but I liked his crying even better. Great ending as well. Um, Pete, come on. You really wanted to see him tickle Stanley. That would have just made me cry, and it would have made baby Jesus cry as well. So, whew, dodged a bullet there, my friend. Well, you know, Pete liked the episode, but like a lot of other people, Val R. did not. She wrote, I feel like I'm in the minority here, but I totally hated this episode. Gave me all sorts of bad feelings. Sure, Michael is a horrible boss, but does Stanley have to say that to his face? And although Toby is impotent and weak, I don't even remember him doing anything as openly mean before. Um, and Michael's Randy Dangerfield act looks so much like a deleted scene, I had to make sure my TV hadn't switched to my DVD player. <laughs> nice comment there from Val. Well, again, I think that's kind of that reading that's saying Toby is doing something mean. I, I, I don't see that reading here. I mean, Toby's HR rep. Ryan is going to come after Jim. The HR rep must be present. Now, um, is is Toby enjoying seeing Jim getting taken down a peg? Sure, you know, he's got the shot in front of there. He's enjoying himself. Um, did he orchestrate this in any way? Oh, I highly doubt it. Amy had this to say. She said, I, too, was not a huge fan of this episode. I liked a lot of the parts, but like last week, it seemed to add up to less than the sum of its parts. The Andy Dwight plotline seemed useless, and Ryan calling Jim out seems totally contrived. Uh, I get that Toby's trying to use the system, but it fell flat. Again, there's that reading. I don't know why people are getting that. Why they make such a big deal about Pam's glasses? Well, you know, actually, I, I thought just the opposite reaction, like you said before. You know, I thought this episode added up to actually more than some of its parts. Um, the the Michael and Andy stuff played into the Dwight and Michael stuff later. I mean, it showed the same negotiating tactics. It was a nice little touch. Uh, we have to build up the animosity. Dwight has to break up Andy and, and Angela before the season finale. So, I don't know. we got to get some of that stuff in there. So, I don't know. if it's, I wonder if it's just a... Maybe it's a male-female thing about not liking this episode. That seems to be our incredibly small sample size so far. <laughs> At least from the comments <laughs> the, that I pulled the from the two, blog page. Yeah, the two comments we've read. Well, Phil wrote that given the writers had Stanley's harsh lines out there, which I didn't like either, I thought that he and Michael actually came to a pretty good understanding afterwards something they can both live with. In a way, Stanley finally respects Michael's need for some respect as the manager. In those moments, Michael actually behaved like a competent manager. He did it calmly and in private. Yep. So another well-received lesson there from <laughs> Phil. Exactly, and uh, Chris Boussard had this to say. So this was the darkest episode of The Office I can remember, but I thought it was the best since the strike ended, uh, and I agree with you that uh, on that for sure. There's about a full two minutes of tense non-comedy that made me scared uncomfortable instead of awkward uncomfortable. Um, also, Jim getting dressed down may have been the most real moment I've seen Krasinski pull off. Maybe it's just that I've been reprimanded at work more than a few times, but he captured the feeling of being totally blindsided really well. You know the feeling when you think you've been cruising along just fine and someone in authority tells you otherwise, and you have no recourse but to simply take it. Um, like Matt... I think Jim is usually a dick, but this time, though, I felt for him. And I do, too. Like I said, you know, I, I, I agree on the one hand that Jim, yeah, he sort of does deserve the criticisms, and none of the stuff Ryan says is really false. But, uh, you know, again, I don't want to see Jim get taken down like this, especially by a little pissant half-beard like Ryan. <laughs> so, Well, I thought Nick Hill had a good comment here. Stanley has, in my books, replaced Ryan as the least likable character on the show. 
Everyone has had their beef with Michael's idiotic ways, and Stanley's blow-up over the mock firing was in many ways justified. However, he typifies the cranky do-nothing old-timer who contributes nothing but criticism, apathy, and negativity. Last week, he led the torch-carrying mob against Pim and Jim for the parking lot logistics snafu, concerned only with his bath and red wine. Uh, lots more praise here for Steve Carell. And yet, as always, the writers remind us that this is, after all, Michael Scott. His butchering of the works of Rodney Dangerfield, Jerry Seinfeld, and Borat was far more painful than was the confrontation with Stanley. So there you I go. I agree. <laughs> um, you know, I, I, I agree on, on a certain, to a certain extent. Although, you know, the thing is with Stanley, though, I mean, even though he was kind of a jerk and blew up, I'm not going to hold it against him. Next week, you know, it's I, I don't dislike the character. I don't know. I don't know what it was. but uh, I wouldn't hold it against him. All right, well, Hannah had this to say. She said, I love Daryl in this episode and how he said it so straight-faced. Fluffy fingers, ha, the writers got me. I actually expected Michael to bust out the tickles all the way through after that, and I was even more surprised that Michael actually dealt with it uh, in a way that a normal boss might. I silently cheered for Michael for finally standing up to him. Uh, also during that scene, I noticed that we were once again acknowledged that it was not a sitcom but a mockumentary seemed to me that they more or less dropped those documentary angles and settled for more classic sitcom-y type camera pans. So, yeah, we kind of mentioned that before. It was, you know, again, a very obvious uh, nod to the fact that there were camera people in the show. So, um, you know, should they get into that more? Have they struck the right balance where it's just enough to keep you there but not really getting too heavy on uh, the documentary angle? I don't know. I like to see them play it up just a little bit more. All right, last comment here is from Elisa, or Lisa. Ryan is a total pant load. That's the blog comment of the week, as far as I'm concerned. That confrontation with Jim was like every conversation I've had with middle and upper management, with the whole, whoa, don't get defensive. I truly felt sympathy for Jim. Yeah, and I didn't play it in the clip there, but, you know, I love how Ryan just totally, he, he, he suckers them in with this lame-ass thing about the Eagles, and then he just kind of blindsides them with with the comment, and then he's like, oh, yeah, hey, no, dude, back it off, man. You know, t- take it with Toby if you have any further questions. Yeah, exactly. Uh, ass. That's about going to do it for us this week. Join us in about a week for episode 44, Job Fair. Please send any comments or constructive compliments to twsspodcast at gmail.com and visit the show blog page at twsspodcast.com. If you have a chance, please leave positive feedback on iTunes and spread the word in the various The Office-related forums. Every little bit helps. Don't forget to join us in the chat room immediately after the show on Thursday. I'll cover the first shift, and Kevin will be around to chat with the West Coasters. Go to TWSSpodcast.com, hit that green Chat Now button, and start talking to other That's What She Said fans. Check out Kevin's blog over at FratPackPodcast.com, and subscribe to his podcast through the site or through iTunes. Music for this episode was provided by the Podshow Podsafe Music Network. Check it out at music.podshow.com. And remember to head on over to nbc.com slash the office during the week for more additional deleted scenes, interviews, episode recaps, and more. And uh, Kevin, thanks again for joining us here at the Water Cooler this week. Bye, Matt.
force it in as deep as you can. This is good. I love it! <laughs>